Oh mighty sultan apologies for waking you up at this unearthly hour permission to grant an audience to our chief spy from Hampi he comes on an urgent matter i have him waiting in the secret chamber say no more audience granted i'll be there shortly what is it spy that couldn't wait till morning my lord i bring an urgent message from your step brother I need to be back before early morning to avoid suspicion. I had not much choice. And you're sure this seal is his? Yes, my lord. I had my agents verify it against the seal maker rolls in Anugundi. Shabash. Wazir, grant him an inam of 300 huns and a well-rested horse. You're now dismissed. Wazir, what do you make of this letter? My lord what if this is all a setup and trap Adil Shah chuckles Wazir you make me laugh at times you afakis can only think of plottings intrigues and unnecessarily complicate the simplest of the things you might even hang the poor bird on the tree after accusing it of being a deccani spy there can only be one ramaraya my step brother is not made of the same steel the fruit has fallen too far from the tree is a petty man i can already see his fealty ooze from his hand trust me he'll be a good puppet inshallah what strange ways of the world my lord no fealty to his own blood even after you and your father-in-law choose your words carefully dear wazir do not ever take my name in the same breath as that of a drunkard will have you dispatched straight to mecca apologies my lord what do you want me to reply back to your step brother tell him that his brother will not sleep or eat until the usurper is overthrown and my dear brother takes his rightful place on the lion throne and wazir order qasir khan to present himself at the darbar first thing in the morning tomorrow yes my lord Hello listeners, welcome to Itihasan, an Indic history podcast, and you're listening to episode 11 of the season Vijayanagara. In the last episode, we delved into the immediate aftermath of the Lakota from the perspective of the capital city Hampi. We looked at it through the eyes of various contemporary chroniclers, epigraphical evidence, 20th and 21st century historians. We also understood how most of them concurred on one important point, which is While Hampi spillage, loot and destruction is a foregone conclusion, the total destruction of the majestic Vijayanagara's capital wasn't won. And it did survive for a bit longer. And finally, the fall of Hampi didn't immediately translate into an implosion of the empire. Vijayanagara still had one more life left and few more punches to pull. We also looked at the military perspective of Thirumalaraya abandoning the capital city immediately after the battle of the Lakota. In this episode, we'll explore in depth the reasons for Thirumalaraya being forced to abandon the capital permanently and falling back to Penukonda. We will also look into the rule and legacy of Thirumalaraya during such a critical time for the empire that was threatening to 
unravel itself fast. As primary sources for this episode, I'll be once again continuing with Henry Harris's phenomenal treatise on the Aravidu dynasty and K. A. Nilakanta Shastri's fantastic works on Vijayanagara. Both of them provide us a really nice composite picture and lay out the new geopolitical landscape that took shape in a post-Likot era. It's widely accepted that a new era had begun for Vijayanagara after Battle of Talikota in 1565 AD. Though I would argue that it was not just for Vijayanagara or the Deccan, but also for the North India, where the Mughals were on their way to forging a formidable empire under the rule of Jalaluddin Muhammad Akbar. In 1564 to 1567 AD, it was a time when Akbar himself was busy with the Mughal conquest of the Hindu kingdom Garha, which is now in Madhya Pradesh and Maharashtra. This was a campaign which saw the Rani Durgavati of Garha fight like a lion and send shivers down the Mughal army before falling on her own sword after her capture in the losing battle looked imminent. 24 June 1564 is celebrated for Rani Durgavati's martyrdom. Even today it is celebrated as Balidan Divas. Before we digress and get lost in the weeds of Mughal empire and the Hindu resistance Let's come back to the 1565 AD of Vijayanagara. We can talk about Mughals in depth in another season. I assure you there'll be time for that. Coming back to the topic, let's pick up the story from the point where the Deccan sultans and Hampi received an embassy from Venkatadri offering terms of ceasefire. A ceasefire in which Vijayanagara was offering to relinquish control over some distant fortresses. and handing back some of their territories that were captured by Ramaraya it is understood that venkatadriya chandragiri was in touch with tirumalaraya in penukonda and that venkatadri was operating on behalf of the now regent tirumalaraya who held the strings of power for now during the six month stay of the deccan sultans and their respective army generals in hampi misunderstandings and differences had opened up once again between all the sultans and as a result it hastened their departure from hampi though this isn't surprising at all as i said in the earlier episodes this alliance was an opportunistic one and its only purpose was to take ramaraya down with their combined firepower which they successfully achieved the muslim golconda chroniclers seem to have confirmed the same in their chronicles in addition to Farishta and Burhani Masir the four sultans escorted each other till the city of Raichur and from there they returned to their own kingdoms till then they put up a face of friendship on the outside but they did depute each of their generals to attack Mudgal and Raichur with a clear order to reduce those forts controlled by Vijayanagara with that the Deccan sultans finally left Hampi and returned to their dominions soon after that as per anquetil do peron tirumalaraya returned to the city here henry harris calls out robert sill for not paying attention to such an important event as clearly it illustrated the fact that though vijayanagara was badly scarred and its vast empire in a precarious position it wasn't exactly defeated it had just lost a battle 
not the war yet so tirumala raya returning to the pillage capital not only showed the importance of this sacred city but also his courage to be willing to take a risk of being so close to the deccan powers after the annexed the adjacent raichur doab and some of the northern fortresses tirumala raya evidently felt he was still in the game and could challenge the deccan sultans once again if not dominate them like before but still keep them on their toes this also shows us one more important thing which is vijayanagara army took losses for sure in the battle of talikota but it was still a potent force we will also see shortly another strong reason for tirumala's confidence while i have to point out that as per h krishna shastri in his work the third vijayanagara dynasty there is no inscription at hampi that records the stay of tirumala within its walls after the battle of talikota but fortunately there is a eyewitness account of this return of tirumala raya to hampi this account is by the venetian merchant caesar federic who supposedly saw it with his own eyes here is a crucial piece of evidence from his chronicles titled a voyage to the east indies and beyond the indies quote when the kings were departed from bezanagar this temeragio returned to the city and then began for to repopulate it and sent word to goa to the merchants that if they had any horses to bring them to him and he would pay well for them and for this cause they forced two merchants that i went in company with carried those horses that they had to bezanagar uncode here caesar frederick is referring to a huge horse trade deal that tirumala raya initiated with the european merchants from goa once he got all the horses from them he then reneged on the payment here it's clear that tirumala raya was willing to play the crook in order to get his hands on a huge number of fine horses and this only meant that he wanted his army to be well equipped with the same number of horses that vijayanagara lost during the battle of talikota and it was only for a single purpose which was to use it against the deccan sultans the other reason for tirumala raya's determination to repopulate the capital and restore it was him being closely aware of the inherent rivalries of the deccan sultans and the imminent collapse of their alliance which happened like tirumalaraya expected immediately after the sultans returned to their kingdoms and ironically in 1566 AD tirumalaraya was invited to join a new alliance of deccan sultans this time the alliance was of the sultans of ahmednagar and golconda against bijapur and for which they needed vijayanagara's crucial support this again reinforces few things Number 1 The other sultans still looked at Vijayanagara as an important player that could tilt the balance in their favor against Bijapur or each other. Second, the fact that they thought of Vijayanagara as still being in the game indicates yet again that its army was still a force. Third, the Islamic alliance against Vijayanagara at Talikota was a farce. It was only a weapon to bring Ramraya down. In fact, this Islamic alliance was also encouraged by the Persian Shah, who asked the warring sultans to set aside their rivalries to take down the bigger enemy. 
fourth, Bijapur was the one who actually gained a lot from the decisive result at Talikota. Vijayanagara's loss was supposed to be the alliance's combined gains. But after everything was done and dusted, Bijapur ended up with a massive territorial expansion, which set it up for further expansion down into south. This evidently alarmed Bijapur's rivals and allies alike. And finally, the Sultan of Golconda, who like Ramaraya was a proponent of the balance of powers doctrine, was in no mood to entertain the idea of Bijapur's lopsided increase in its power. So sometime around the end of 1565 AD, the Sultan of Ahmednagar, Hussein Nizam Shah, the archenemy of Ramaraya, whose head he decapitated, died as a result of excessive drinking. It is said that he had become a drunkard after the humiliation at the hands of Ramaraya, like we saw in episode 2. And then he also drank after Tallikota out of both happiness and remorse. A strange character indeed. So with Hussein Nizam Shah's death, the nascent alliance was in danger and this set off a chain of events. The young son of Hussein Nizam Shah, Murtaza Nizam Shah's excesses after his ascension went out of control. This led to court intrigue and betrayal in Ahmednagar with the Ahmednagar general Kishawar Khan inviting Bijapur Sultan to invade Ahmednagar and unseat the young and mad Sultan. The general assures Bijapur Sultan that there is a strong faction in Ahmednagar that supported his invasion. So Murtaza Nizam Shah and Kuli Qutub Shah decide to form an alliance and invite Tirumalaraya to join them against Bijapur. Support of Vijayanagara to the new alliance was even more important and to Tirumala himself. It was a very valuable chance to recoup the losses after Tallikota. So Tirumalaraya being the proverbial chip of the old block, his dead brother Alia Ramaraya, he too followed the same Machiavellian policy of exploiting the fissures between the jealous sultans and gave his tacit support to the alliance. And this time, Vijayanagara stood to gain a lot more from this opportunistic alliance. At least that's what Tirumalaraya initially thought. But it is at this point that the Queen Mother, Khonza Humayun of Murtaza Nizam Shah and the widowed Begum of now dead Hussein Nizam Shah, who plays a spoil sport due to her high-handedness and arrogance, just like Ramaraya's occasional arrogance against the Sultans. So the Begum Khunza of Ahmednagar asked the allies to give her 200,000 Huns as an aid in light of the territorial encroachments of Bijapur Sultan. Tirumalaraya evidently gets incensed at this impetuous request and arrogance of the Begum, who in his eyes was in no position to dictate terms or demand anything. Especially considering the fact that Tirumalaraya was doing a favour to Ahmednagar and Golconda by joining their alliance. At this point, Tirumalaraya, through the Golconda Sultan, sends a strongly worded message along with his refusal to pay any such amount to the Begum. The Sultan of Golconda tries his best to drive some sense into the Begum Khunza, asking her to drop this silly idea. 
Here is an excerpt of the message sent by the Golconda Sultan to Khunza. Quote, It appeared very impolitic in the present posture of affairs to make demands of money on Yaltumaraj, Chitramalaraya, instead of conciliating one who was a useful ally at the head of 10,000 men and who had reason to bear great enmity towards a powerful state which they were on the point of attacking." Unquote. So Khunza Humayun, instead of acting on the sound advice, persists in her demands and even starts threatening Tirumalaraya. Tirumalaraya was no less than his brother Ramaraya and he doesn't tolerate this impetuousness. So he not only refuses to pay a dime but now decides to instead attack the very alliance that wanted his support. Here an astute listener might wonder why Begum Khunza botched her own young son and new Sultan of Ahmednagar's alliance and planned to take on Bijapur. Was this an inadvertent mistake attributed to Begum's arrogance? Or was it a real politic on her part to overshadow her young son with some sort of secret understanding with the Bijapur's Adil Shah? It's important to remember that her daughter Chand Bibi was married to the Adil Shah to facilitate the Grand Alliance prior to the Battle of Tallikota. In the interest of time, we won't go into this aspect at this point as that would take us deep into the history of Deccan Sultans. For now, it's just worth noting the circumstances. With Tirumalaraya now marching against the Alliance, Ibrahim Qutb Shah of Golconda was clearly in an undesirable pickle for no fault of his and the alliance crashed even before it could take off. Now the Qutb Shah was also forced to march against Tirumalaraya to protect Golconda against Vijayanagara's rage. This ultimately led to a tense standoff between both the armies with no action being initiated by both sides. Ultimately, both sides decided to call off this confrontation and pull back their armies. I think both Vijayanagara and Golconda realized that their conflict would only be beneficial to the already powerful Bijapur and finally sense prevailed on both the sides. Now at this point, Henry Harris and K. Shastri diverge on the main reason for why Tirumalaraya once again abandoned Hampi after trying his best to resettle it. Henry Harris claims that the primary reason was a fear of constant attacks by the Deccan Sultans. Here he quotes a source called Chikkadevaraya Vamsavali to back this up. Though I have been personally unsuccessful so far in my attempts to get hands and eyes on that source, so I cannot verify this. Henry Harris also points to a report from Farishta's Chronicles as evidence for his assertion. The event he points to is a battle between Adil Shah and Tirumalaya sometime at the end of 1566 or beginning of 1567 AD. Here the Adil Shah attacks Vijayanagara and Tirumalaya, who was trained by Ramarai in diplomacy, played on the jealousy and fears of Ahmednagar's Begum Khunza by instigating her against the growing power of Bijapur. Using this as yet another opportunistic moment, she marches on Bijapur and Adil Shah is forced to abandon his personal campaign against Vijayanagara. 
பட் இ டெப்யூட்ஸ் இஸ் ஜெனரல் ரம்பிகேசரு கானோ இட் மைண்ட் பி கசர் கான் டு அட்டாக் இட் ஹியர் திருமலாஸ் மினிஸ்டர் சின்னப்ப நாயக்கா டிஃபீட்ஸ் த பிஜாபுரி ஜெனரல் டிசைசிவ்லி அண்ட் வார்ட்ஸ் ஆஃப் திஸ் அட்டாக் ஒன்ஸ் அகேன் ஹென்ரி ஹேரஸ் ஆங்கர்ஸ் இஸ் அசஸ்மெண்ட் ஒன் அன் இன்கம்ப்ளீட் ஆர் இன் ஆக்யூரேட் ரிப்போர்ட் ஆஃப் ஃபெரிஷ்தா வாயில் தி பேட்டில் தட் ஹென்ரி ரெஃபர்ஸ் டு டிட் ஆக்சுவலி ஹேப்பன் the place where it happened though matters and henry confuses this for humpy it instead was a fort of penconda where thirumalaraya ruled from in reality and chinnapanayaka was a fort commander of penconda and not humpy henry also fails to mention why adil shah in the first place attacked humpy out of blue and this is where the scholarly brilliance of k n elakanta shastri shines In his scholarly work Further Sources of Vijayanagara History Volume 1 which was published in 1946 he tells us exactly why Thirumalaraya left Hampi for good I'd reveal the clue for this in the bonus bit in the beginning of this episode Some listeners might have already sensed that If you did kudos to your astute listening and prediction skills The clue lies in the sons of Ramaraya Ramaraya had five sons from three wives. Two of them, two of the sons were from his wife Tirumalamba, the daughter of Krishnadevaraya. Due to the pedigree and bloodline of the great Raya, these two sons wielded much more power than the other three. Those two were Krishnappa and Padathirumala. Krishnappa died on the battlefield of Tallikota along with his father. And Padathirumala was a supposed heir of Ramaraya. So Padathirumala was naturally looking to take over the reins of Ramaraya. But then his uncle and Ramaraya's brother Tirumalaraya pulled the carpet under his young nephew's feet by becoming the regent of the puppet emperor Sadasivaraya after the Tallikota debacle. Tirumalaraya was obviously much more capable, experienced in administration of the empire, had long association with his brother Ramaraya. was a war veteran who commanded huge respect from most nobility and citizens of Vijayanagara but Padda Tirumala being the grandson of Sri Krishna Devaraya evidently had a stronger claim to the regency of lion throne than Tirumala Raya so it was a technical detail on which Padda Tirumala was able to marshal more support in the capital Hampi so the nobility in the Hampi got split into two factions one supporting Tirumalaraya's claim to regency and the other supporting Padda Tirumala i think the deciding factor was the public sympathy for Padda Tirumala in whom the people of hampi saw their beloved emperor shri krishna devaraya this invariably forced tirumalaraya to abandon his plans to make hampi the power base again and this left with him the only option of going back to the temporary capital penikonda where he had significant clout when compared to his nephew so with the puppet emperor under the thumb of tirumalaraya in chandragiri he effectively outmaneuvered his scheming nephew and consolidated his hold on the regency with this abandoning act of tirumalaraya the capital hampi slowly lost its importance and was just an old capital gradually whatever remaining wealth prosperity and skilled labor drained out of it in due course of time 
and it also became a small principality and started to fall into ruins. But Padda Thirumala wasn't going to roll over and die. He appeals to the Bijapur Sadil Shah to come to his rescue, eject his own uncle and help him claim his rightful place as the regent of the Lion Throne. On first look, it's really surprising that Ramaraya's son not only would team up with an enemy who just recently helped defeat his father, but also ask the same enemy to unseat his father's brother too. But then, it shouldn't really be surprising because young Pedda Tirumala learned that from his own father, Ramaraya. Ramaraya had in the past taken the help of Ibrahim Adil Shah of Bijapur to suppress a rebellion by his own brothers in Vijayanagara. While this in itself is a separate story, the summary of it is, the brothers of Ramaraya at one point rebelled against him after Ramaraya had put the young emperor in a virtual house arrest in his quest to consolidate his hold on the reins of power. We saw this briefly in episode 4 and 5. So the mistreatment of young emperor was something that the brothers did not approve of and wanted Ramaraya to show respect to the emperor and the traditions of the court. This led to a temporary conflict between them and with the help of Adil Shah, Ramaraya crushed the rebellion and welcomed back his brothers into his fold after pardoning them. This incident, I'm sure, was something that the Tirmala was aware of. And with this precedent set by his own father, it becomes easy to see why Padda Tirmala sought the help of one of the Vijayanagara's arch-rivals in his own quest for power. And the Sultan of Bijapur was more than glad to help him to weaken the internal situation of Vijayanagara and slow down the attempts of Tirmala Raya to rebuild the empire's strength. And this is what led to the earlier discussed siege of Penakonda and Adil Shah's aborted campaign against Vijayanagara, with Ahmednagar breathing down his neck. Finally, with the threat of both Bijapur, his nephew and political rival, with the Tirmala neutralized, Tirmala Raya consolidated his hold on the regency. And after this, Tirmala Raya gets another opportunity to join yet another alliance of Nizam Shah and Qutb Shah against Bijapur. This time, Tirmala Raya goes on the offensive by immediately sending one of his sons at the head of 10,000 troops. But this turns out to be a mistake strategically, as nothing concrete comes out of this alliance for Vijayanagara. This only enrages Bijapur even more. And in 1568 AD, the Sultan of Bijapur cleverly makes peace and comes to an understanding with the other two rival sultans that he wouldn't interfere in their affairs and that they shouldn't interfere in his conquest of Vijayanagara. The Bijapur Sultan this time attacks the Vijayanagara fort of Adoni, which is in now Karnol district, Andhra Pradesh. And after a long siege, manages to wrest control of the fort from Koneti Kondamaraju the Nayaka of the region. And at the same time, Adil Shah sends his general Mali Khan to attack Pinakonda stronghold. Once again, Savaram Channappa Nayaka 
defeats the Bijapuri army and manages to hold the fort. Notwithstanding the loss of border forts like Adoni, Tirumalaraya manages to hold the bulk of the empire together. And this couldn't have been possible without a strong support of many powerful Nayakas who still remain loyal to the empire. One has to really appreciate the political, military and diplomatic acumen of Tirumalaraya. This is normally understated in the narratives around Vijayanagara. Most of the narratives tend to revolve around the golden age of Vijayanagara and which invariably translates to an incessant focus on Sri Krishna Devaraya. While the great Raya and Tirumala's predecessor Ramaraya were operating from a position of immense strength, Tirumala was comparatively in a deep hole when it came to the health of the empire in post-Tallikota era. And what looked like an imminent implosion of the empire was only stalled by the valiant efforts of Tirumalaraya. It is important to remember that Tirumalaraya was no less than 86 years in 1568 AD. For a man whose one foot was already in the grave, it is really commendable that he still had the fire in his belly and determination to fight off both internal and external threats. On a lighter note, most 40 and 50 year olds today have no such concept of fire in the belly. Rather, there is only the concept of full fat in the belly and 84 year olds are on a diet of painful medications. It's really amazing how fit our ancestors were mentally and physically back then. Now let's look into the crucial six year period immediately after the defeat at Tallikota. This period was called the period of anarchy. During this time, the empire passed through the most critical period of its entire existence. Internal dissension and petty warfare kept challenging the empire's unity. While the foreign invasions by the Deccan sultans kept badgering it from outside. Tirumala's troubles were compounded by the previous administrative blunders made by his brother Ramaraya. If you remember in episode 4 and 5, I had spoken in detail on this. Ramaraya's subversion and dilution of the strong civil service and bureaucracy of Vijayanagara due to his indulgence into nepotism cost the empire dearly in the long run. And the effects of it were glaringly evident especially after Tallikota. Ramaraya's relatives and dependents were placed in important positions across civil and military governance structures now refused to obey the orders and policies of Tirumalaraya. These elements were instead busy in self-elevating themselves with or without the encouragement of Pedda Tirumala. There were few Nayakas like Koneti Kondaraju and Vela Paraya who declared themselves as independent rulers after Ramaraya's death. But then again, these were few exceptions. It's important to point out that it were the people who suffered more due to the breakdown of law and order during these turbulent six years, thanks to an unsettled government. They suffered mostly at the hands of thieves, decoits and the local paligars. And not to mention the raids or the frequent raids conducted by the Deccan sultans. This was the situation in Telugu provinces of the empire. And it wasn't any different in the Kannada and Tamil provinces too. The southern part of the empire was undoubtedly out of reach of the Muslim sultans yet. But the local Nayakas started competing and fighting with each other 
in their attempt to elevate themselves from a political standpoint. In the extreme south of the empire, Krishnappa, the son of Vishwanatha Nayaka, who held the amaram of Tiruvadi Desa, which is now Tamil Nadu and Madurai, began to subdue the neighboring chiefs and was successful in establishing himself as a force to reckon with in the regions of Madurai and whole of the empire south of the Kaveri River. Similarly, Achyutapa Nayaka, who held the amaram of few provinces in the now Tanjavur district, usurped authority in the erstwhile Chola-dominated regions. In the commandant of Jinji, seized a large part of Tondai Mandalam, which is the now northern part of Tamil Nadu. Tirumal Raya was in a way helpless during this period against all these rebellious acts. It was mostly due to the fact that Vijayanagara forces were kept busy fighting against the Deccan incursions and skirmishes. So Tirumiraya couldn't spare enough forces to bring these rebellious chiefs under control. Also it's worth mentioning that from a financial perspective too, the empire's coffers were almost dry after the collapse of major trading center like Hampi. And this is where I think Tirumaraya shows his character in metal. Any lesser mortal would have thrown his arms up in the air. But Tirumaraya did not lose heart and he resolved to re-equip the army in every way. Tirumaraya worked intelligently on the political front by bringing over few powerful Nayakas solidly into his camp, in addition to many other royal ones. There is reference to one important Nayaka by the name Immadi Jagadeva Rao, who supposedly crowned not only Ramaraya but also Tirumalaraya and his sons later. He seems to have played an important part in establishing Tirumalaraya's power. Tirumala also brought over the earlier rebellious Nayakas of the provinces of Madurai, Tanjavur and Jinji by tacitly approving their usurpations for now. At this point, Tirumalaraya, to keep these Nayakas under control, divides the empire into three main dominions based on linguistic factors. They were the Telugu, Kannada and Tamil dominions. These were then assigned to each of his sons. As per this arrangement, Tirumalaraya's eldest son, Sri Ranga, became the ruler of Telugu dominions with Penakonda as his headquarters. The second son, Rama, ruled the Kannada dominions with his headquarters at Sri Rangapatna. And finally, the third son, Venkatapati, ruled the Tamil dominion with his headquarters at Chandragiri. I have to mention that Tirumalaraya actually had four sons. The eldest one was actually Raghunatha, but he had died in the battle at Tallikota. Also, another purpose for dividing the empire into dominions or administrative centers was that Tirumala wanted to focus on combating Muslim invasions while his sons administered the empire. With this, Tirumalaraya finally accomplished the task of infusing a fresh life into the empire and arresting its further decline for the moment. As per the contemporaries and literature of his time, he was hailed as the reviver of the decadent Karnataka empire. And finally, Tirumaraya had himself crowned in 1570 AD as the new emperor of Penakonda.
but Tirumala's reign was a short one for around a year at the most it was mostly due to his advanced age that he decided to abdicate in favor of his eldest son Sri Ranga 1 and with his son's ascension Tirumala Raya retired from public life and supposedly took to spiritual pursuits while it's clear that Tirumala Raya was a very effective administrator and politician it's worth noting that the empire he ended up rejuvenating had become of a different character than what it was earlier the empire had lost its unitary character which meant that the nayakas who were earlier strongly dependent on the emperor's mandala that we saw in episode 6 were now loosely connected and had attained a status of semi independence what used to be a temporary amram or title granted by the emperor on a conditional basis to a nayaka had now morphed into a hereditary estate in short it was no longer possible for the emperor to reassign the amram or the province or the estate to other nayaka without having to resort to military force and from an economic standpoint too the nayakas now felt they were the true owners of the wealth of their amrams or provinces instead of the emperor nevertheless the legacy of tirumala raya cannot be understated or underestimated if not for him the empire would have collapsed right after talikota and it was his rule that delayed the total collapse by another 80 years finally we come to the question of puppet emperor sadasivaraya the last remnant of talwa dynasty and nephew of shri krishna devaraya what happened to him it is asserted by some chroniclers like caesar frederick and anquetaldo peron that sadasivaraya did not die a natural death and he was assassinated in the prison by one of the sons of tirumalaraya robert sol claims that sadasivaraya was murdered by tirumalaraya himself and who then seized the throne for himself but henry harris disagrees with this view and he claims that tirumalaraya did not stain his own hands with the regicide instead he was a mere a better and an accomplice whereas the real murderer was tirumala's son venkatapati henry harris also points to the research of venkaiya and h krishna shastri as a proof of tirumala raya's culpability in the murder and this is where k a nilakantha shastri disagrees and once again comes up with strong pieces of evidence to show that henry harris and robert sol base their assessment on faulty evidence shastri once again dips into the invaluable village kaifiyats which as per him unanimously declare that sadasiva raya ruled for 6 years after the battle of talikota and he also points to the inscriptions which clearly show that sadasiva raya was alive up until 1576 ad inscriptions from sambedu in south arcot district dated may 9th 1575 Another inscription from Bhagatara Halli dated Jan 25th 1576 AD in Mysore declares that Sadasivaraya was seated on the jeweled throne and finally another inscription that supposedly confirms the earlier two inscriptions 
So as per Shastri it's clear that Sadasivaraya was alive and not assassinated in either 1568 or 1570 AD. Henry Harris though claims that these later inscriptions post 1570 were the result of the news of Sadasivaraya's death not reaching all the corners of the empire fast enough. Nilakanta Shastri claims that Tirumalaraya had no strong motive to eliminate Sadasivaraya. As the puppet emperor was no political threat at any point during the rule of either Ramaraya or Tirumalaraya. He was supposedly of a docile and weak character that lacked a spine to stand up to his overbearing regents. Such a character in my opinion deserves to be a mere figurehead and commands no sympathy or respect. Shastri asserts that This story of Sadasivaraya's assassination by Tirumalaraya and his sons was actually a clever and insidious false propaganda spread by Tirumalaraya's political opponents and the restless Nayakas who were eager to assert themselves independently. In my personal opinion, I find Shastri's explanation a bit more realistic and believable. Especially when I tie the act of rebellion by Tiruvalaraya and Venkatadri in the past against their powerful elder brother Ramaraya for disrespecting the emperor that's not to say that Tiruvalaraya could have had his own motives with the changed situation and also the past tradition of Vijayanagara's political system of not tolerating regicide by usurpers we saw in one of the previous episodes What happened to usurpers like Salukatimaraju who engaged in royal massacres and regicide Also considering the volatile situation after Tallikota and weaker claim of Tirumalaraya on regency in light of his nephew Pedda Tirumala's political head jobs I highly doubt that Tirumalaraya would have dared to commit or endorse a regicide of a ruling monarch even though Sadasivaraya was a mere ceremonial figurehead such an act would have only galvanized support for Pedda Tirumala and Tirumalaraya's internal and external opponents would have been gifted a golden opportunity on a platter to dispose of him the fact that this didn't happen might show that Tirumalaraya was politically astute enough to realize the simple truth that Sadasivaraya was his ticket to power and it was in his interest to keep him alive as long as possible or at least until he subdued all of his opponents having said that i do have to concede that henry harris does make one solid point that cannot be ignored in his attempts to show thermalaraya's motive to assassinate sadasivaraya henry puts forward a view that Tiruvallaraya saw the weak puppet emperor as a loud liability to the empire especially in a critical period post the Likota the very emperor who has been a ticket to power for both Ramaraya and Tiruvallaraya could also be a ticket to power for not just their own internal opponents like the Tiruvalla but also the Deccan sultans who clearly had their own designs to weaken the empire even further So Tirumalaraya in his sincere attempts to repair the empire might have made a cold and calculated decision to remove the liability altogether 
at the risk of tainting his legitimacy and political support from some quarters. After committing regicide of an illegitimate yet important document of the lion's throne. In either case, there is no smoking gun evidence to prove either Thirumalaraya's innocence or guilt. So depending on how one looks at it, he can be guilty until proven innocent or the other way around. So in this way, the sad character of Sada Severaya comes to an end. With this, we will end the current episode in which we explored in depth the legacy of Thirumalaraya and how he saved the empire from the brink of collapse. We saw how Thirumalaraya is an underappreciated personality in the modern narratives around Vijayanagara. We also saw the mystery surrounding the death of the last emperor from Tullava dynasty, Sadasevaraya, and how the geopolitics and real politics of the day might have led to either his assassination or the rumors of such an event to discredit Thirumalaraya. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode and if you did please do hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review a huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show in the next episode we'll explore the foundation of the vijayanagara empire and the events that led to it i hope to see you soon in the next episode till then this is narendra vikram your host and narrator signing off hope you have a great week ahead Thank you.